If you've ever wondered about what goes on behind the scenes at restaurants, then you're in the right place. This podcast takes you inside the minds of restaurant owners, chefs, bartenders, servers, basically anybody who has anything to do with food, drink, or hospitality. I'm Brady Vixilio, owner of Steinhuber's Restaurant in La Bella Italia on Alaskan Road in Virginia Beach. Welcome to The Check Podcast. And I'm Alvin Williams, co-host of The Check and owner of Cobalt Grill Restaurant at Hilltop in Virginia Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We'll be talking about restaurants, people who work in restaurants, who own restaurants, and the people who like to dine in restaurants. It's been a little while since our last podcast. We went to Castle Hill and to uh, Barbersville Vineyard. It was a beautiful trip, beautiful people, great food, great drinks. We had a good time. We did. It was uh, good to get away. It's not too far to get up there uh, near Charlottesville. We got to speak with some great professionals who are very passionate and very good at what they do. And it was uh, fun to fun to see that. We've had a couple requests from our listeners, which is very exciting. The request was that we talk a little bit about our history personally, our experience, the history of our restaurants, our past, basically, which a lot of us like to... Forget about some of it. But. Do you think they just want to know if we're qualified to sit here and talk about restaurants? I think that's part of it, actually. Alvin, you, you grew up in England, in Leeds. How old were you when you decided, I like to cook and that's what I want to do? You know, it was from a very early age, and it wasn't about that I wanted to cook, or it was more of a necessity. Um, when we were kids growing up in England, we were kind of like latchkey kids. I don't know if you're familiar with that term over here. But it's where you, you go off to school and then you come home in the afternoon, your parents are at work and they leave the key. You stick your hand through the, the letterbox and the key is dangling on a string and you pull the string through with the key on it and you open the door and you let yourself in. Probably a bad idea because probably anybody could have stuck their hand in there and opened up your house. Well, anybody with small hands. True. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> yes. So, um, so we would come home at lunchtime, myself and my friend Nick and... And we'd um we'd we'd cook because we had to eat for lunch. So we'd we'd cook very basic things like you know beans on toast, or I'd make corned beef with onions and you know different things. So that was kind of how I got started through necessity because we were hungry at lunchtime and we didn't have packed lunches or we didn't always have lunches at school. So we would come home and cook for ourselves. I I know your parents. I know your mom. Or I'm sorry, your mom and uh, <laughs> my mom. Yeah, yeah. Is she a cook? Are your parents cooks? Um, my parents do both cook. My um, dad does more of the cooking. I'm not sure why, but um, he's very good at it. And it was always kind of West Indian food was what they prepared growing up. They're both Jamaican. That was the food that I had at home. And that was the food that I learned initially how to cook. Yeah. So through school, I, I was cooking and then I had a home economics class and I seemed to be pretty good at that, you know, because they teach you trades in in England. So they teach you metalwork and they teach you how to do woodwork and then they give you home economics class where you you bake and you cook and 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 for some reason I was pretty good at that at the end of high school where I did okay I got through I passed high school but I just hadn't figured out what I wanted to do with my life yet so at the end of high school I was given the opportunity to go to a trade school which was culinary school similar to what they have here with Johnson and Wales and those things it was a two year course and I did very well there and enjoyed it and I just uh, kind of felt like home, what I should be doing and what I was good at. So that's how I started cooking. So, yeah, so I started 
out of necessity and then it, it bloomed from school into college. What about you, Brady? How did you start? I never really thought about it much. I was just in it. It's kind of like, I just never did anything else. You know, I grew up here in, in the restaurant. I, I used to, I used to really like hanging out with my grandfather who was running the restaurant at the time. And my uncle was always fun to hang out with. And he was, he was over here at the restaurant and I, I just, I was just involved. I think what really drew me in originally was, you know, to be, to spend time with my grandfather is he, he did everything he did. He, you know, he'd cut the grass, he'd, he'd ride around on the tractor and, and do all that stuff. And I thought all that was pretty cool. And, and then he'd come over here, there'd be a refrigerator that wasn't working and he'd be able to fix it. And I'd sit there and kind of learn about refrigeration with him and whatever it was, plumbing, electrical, all that stuff really kind of was interesting to me. And that's, that's kind of the way I de- identified the restaurant as a kid. It was like a place to play around with equipment. As far as the hospitality and the food, I mean, that was all, the restaurant was kind of an extension of my home. Originally it was activity. It was something to do. I was, you know, when I wasn't hanging out with my friends, I would be over here with my grandfather, my uncle, uh, my mom, and we'd just be working on things together. So you had the overall experience of um, everything that a restaurant encompasses from the kitchen to the grounds, to the refrigeration, to hanging out with your grandfather, to learning hospitality in the front of the house, the back of the house. That's pretty cool to me. I mean, I, I only got to learn the kitchen and that was it. That was just my focus the whole way through, but it would have been great to start off early and get to the full knowledge of how to run a restaurant. I really didn't get into cooking until later, you know, until I was an older kid, I guess, in my teens. And then I went away to college and went into hospitality and tourism management in which we learned how to, uh, we had a lot of cooking classes. I've been able to apply a lot of that education to, to what I do now and, and that experience growing up in it. How about you, Alvin? What, what did you learn practically before you actually got into the business that you've been able to apply now? You know, what, what I find is that, and I realize this now later, is that what I learned in culinary school was the basics. And I left, the, left there thinking that I knew everything, but you're only taught the basics because there's so much to learn. So they teach you about pastry and they teach you sauces and they teach you, you know, grilling and cooking and searing. And then they also teach you um, a little bit on the, the front of the house side where you you know, wine presentations and serving and, you know, serving to the left and clearing from the right and how to pour wine and and how to interact with the customers. So there's so much to, so many subjects to learn that they can only spend so much time on each one. So you just learn the basics, really. During culinary school, when I was given the opportunity to do some internships, that's where I really learned about cooking. And about chefs and the hierarchy and and everything that goes on in a in a practical way in hotels and restaurants at Virginia Tech, where I where I'd got my degree in hospitality and tourism management, they always told us that they weren't teaching people how to be chefs, but how to how to be managers and, and to run run things. And I think that's accurate. But we had a lot of I mean, we were pretty. It was in depth cooking, and we did. Not quite as extensive as, as you did, I'm sure. I remember really getting into baking, all different kinds of baking stuff that I'd never heard of. 
pastries and, and quick breads and shortbreads, different kinds of leavened pastries, steam and yeast and um, soda. And that was that was pretty interesting. And we also, of course, touched on the sauces and all that all that sort of thing. And then we had practical time at the hotel on campus where we'd work in the kitchen. And we are, we're, we're also studying hotels. We did equal time in hotels. A lot of what I think I also learned um, in culinary school is not just about cooking skills and, and that kind of practicality. I, I really believe that they were training us how to be ready for the world, how to get to school early and not just on time and how to interact with other people and you know how to how to work with other people there's a lot of other things that they taught us just in you know how to chop or how to cut a brunoise or a julienne or those kind of things how to steam how to how to broil and bake it was a lot of life skills that i think they were definitely trying to prepare us for the world Brady, was there anything that you learned on the hotel side of learning that, that transferred over to the restaurant that's been helpful for you through the, through the years? Well, I think the education was, was kind of wide. Uh, the, certainly in the hotel, we did, we did time uh, as a maid. We did time in maintenance. We did time front desk, night auditing. Uh, we shadowed the managers. All of those things contributed. We did marketing, which was the hotel marketing was was part of the thing. Now, what was what was marketing back then? Because now we we know it's, it's a good point. Since you know the yeah. internet and now the internet was young, yeah. So now there's Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all these. This is the marketing now. What was it then? We made web pages, and certainly we talked about like direct mail, and we did and we did like a, a little direct mail campaign, and it wasn't like it is today. Not not even close. We did a campaign where we were handing out flyers to get people to come into the hotel because students could have one meal. If they were on the meal plan, they could have one meal at the hotel every semester. So most of our marketing was on campus trying to get those guys, those kids to come in, the students to come in and, and get their meal. Get their meal. Cool. And one of the classes, we set up a whole restaurant from top to bottom, like a theoretical thing. And we had kind of a, what do you call it, like a focus group of students amongst ourselves. And we'd try different things on each other. Yeah, we had two of those. We had two restaurants within the within our school. And it would be more OAPs that would come in at lunchtime and what's an OAP? Old age pensioner. <laughs> the, the, the older people who, you know, wanted a cheap lunch and they didn't mind if somebody screwed up the service. So they would all, you know, trickle in for lunch and we would get to practice on them. So it's the kitchen that's practicing cooking the food for them. And then there's the other half of your group that would, you know, serve and, and wait on them. We weren't the picture of perfection right. at the Donaldson Brown <laughs> Hotel and Conference Center uh, dining room where the students could come, and <laughs> which was good because one of us would be a manager and have to deal with the complaints with the overcooked steaks and the, um, you know, oversalted food or undersalted food, you know, the same sort of thing. That we're dealing with today. <laughs> deal with <now. laughs> After your education, you, you got a job, I think, in London, right? Yeah, so like I was saying before, I um, had the opportunity to do some internships, and one was at the Mayfair Hotel, which is in London, and the second one was at a, a hotel called Grosvenor House Hotel, which is on Park Lane, um, also in London. It's a five-star hotel, still there, and they enjoyed the work that I did, and I guess, and they asked me to come back full-time after I'd finished uh, college. And you were like a resident there at one point, weren't you? Um. <laughs> Well, you spent a few nights. I'd spent a few nights. Well, because here's what happens. So 
you're young and you can work lots of hours because you're just young and you're fit. So I would go in around, I don't know, seven or eight in the morning and you wouldn't finish work until, let's say, 10 o'clock. And then you would go out clubbing because you're young and you, you just think that you need two hours sleep a night. So you go out clubbing and everybody works in the city, in the West End, but nobody lives in the West End unless you're super rich. So you get the train or the bus or a taxi and go out to the suburbs. Obviously, sometimes there's not enough time to get out to the suburbs, get some sleep and come back in. Unfortunately, sometimes we would meet, you know, like the chambermaids who would live in the hotel because they would live on premise. Oh, it's the chambermaids that live there. Yeah. So if you were fortunate to be friendly with the chambermaid, then you could just, you know, sleep on her little couch for a few hours and then bribe the security guards with a packet of cigarettes and they wouldn't say anything. And then you could walk down the stairs to work in the morning. It's a win-win for everybody. The security guard gets his smokes. <laughs> security guard gets his smokes. <laughs> I get to work on time. And the chambermaid gets to listen to you snore on her couch. There you go. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so, so that happened. But, you know, that life, it's just, um, it's cool for a while, but you get burned out because you don't really see the sun and you work in six, seven days a week and it's hard graft and it's, you're working with those French chefs and Swiss chefs and Germans and they're, and they're all crazy. And it's, it's like a lot of it you see on TV, like, you know, Gordon Ramsay and those guys and they're throwing pans around and, and, and acting crazy. And a lot of that is real. I mean, those are the kind of kitchens that I grew up working in. And what brought you over here to the United States? That is an excellent question, Brady. Um, well, you can do like the politicians do and just say how great the question is and then talk about. No, no, no. no, no I'll tell you the absolute truth. Um, family. Family brought me over. I had been working those ridiculous hours and I did get burned out for a while and I decided that I wasn't going to cook anymore and I'd had enough and, and that was it. I was going to do something else because cooking in, at that level was just too hard. And my sister, one of my sisters, I have three sisters, one it was in America, one was in England, and one was in St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. My sister said, you know, she was having a baby and she needed help. And would I come over and help her? And she was in New York City. And I said, well, she was in Queens, not in the city. And I said, yeah, sure. So it's a great time because I'm burned out. I've had enough of cooking. So I'll just come hang out and help you. And um, so I did that for a while. And my other sister, who is now living in St. Croix, she was in Virginia Beach. She had married a Navy guy. And that's how we all were here because of the Navy. She was down in Virginia Beach. And New York was a little too much like London for me. It was a little too fast paced and I could see myself, you know, getting into that lifestyle again. I didn't want that. So we decided to move down to Virginia Beach with my other sister where things were a great pace of life down here. You had the beach and you had shopping malls. We never had shopping malls in England when I was growing up. So that was something new. And the ocean was just beautiful. And that's why I ended up here. Aren't we lucky? Well, <laughs> I don't know whether you're lucky or not. But what happened was I ran out of money. And <laughs> I figured I need to get a job. And the only thing I knew how to do was to cook. At the time, there was a, a newspaper, a magazine called The Portfolio. And they had they just done their top 10 restaurants. And I looked through those and I sent my CV, my resume off to those 10 restaurants and four or five of them got back to me and I had some interviews and the rest is kind of Virginia Beach history. Well, so at that point you landed at Le Chambord. I did indeed. It was kind of serendipitous. I went there and it was this guy that was larger than life who owned the place. He was Belgian. His name was Frank Spapen and he was familiar with 
the places that I'd worked in London and, and I showed him my, all my certificates and resumes and, and all these and letters of, what do you call it? When so a recommendation, I showed him all that stuff. And he just says, yeah, yeah, yeah. People bring me this stuff all the time and I don't believe him. And you know, I don't believe you. Why do you, why do you think I'm going to hire you and pay you this amount of money? I said, well, you know what? I said, I'll work for you for a while. And you can tell me if you like me or not. You don't have to pay me. I'll work for free. And let's see if, you know, you like me and I like you. And if we get along and, and, and then if you like what I do, then you pay me. If not, you know, nice to meet you. See, you know, have, have a great day kind of thing. And it was like, what? Really? And I was like, yeah, sure. Let's go. So we started and I started working there and, you know, loved the food that he was doing because it was French classical and it was kind of easy to me. And about three days into me working there, it was like, okay, baby, I think you are who you say you are. <laughs> so I'll, I'll pay you when you've got a job. Yeah. So I ended up being there for six, seven years before I opened Cobalt. I never had the had the pleasure of dining in the Le Chambord dining room proper for dinner, but I did go to brunch one time and and it was excellent. Why did you never have dinner there? Did did you not think it was going to be good or you just didn't have the funds or what's going on? I didn't have the funds. Huh. I mean, really, <laughs> I didn't know you yet. So if I knew you, I probably would have kind of, you know, made it happen. But let's see, let's put a time on uh, line on this. When, what were the years where you worked at Chambord? I think I was there from 93 until 2000. So 93 to 95, maybe 96. I was at Le Chambord side, and then later on, they opened up the Bistro side, and then I went over there and ran that. All right, so that answer is pretty easy then. So I graduated from high school in 93. Okay. And college in 97. Okay. So at that point, when you were there, I mean, that was the only way I was going to see you at all, was to come to the Bistro right. at brunch, which is, I think, the first time I ever... Do you remember seeing me there? Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, we had that open kitchen, so you know it was kind of hard to miss. Yeah, I remember you were there. Probably a little hungover. <laughs> That's the rough thing about the brunch shift. You talk to anybody in the restaurant business, nobody wants to do the brunch shift because you've been out, you've been working hard Saturday night, and then you go out to reward yourself with friends, cocktails, and then who wants to get up and do brunch at seven a.m.? Yeah, it's a it's a hard road. At that point, I was I was doing my part. My, it was it was kind of my stage of life that you referred to that you did in in London. I was doing that here. I mean, I was working six days. We were closed on Sundays at that point, and I I don't I'm trying to remember. I think we were closed Mondays too, at least for part of that time. So Sundays and Mondays, I I guess. But I remember being in here working on Mondays. I think I was just in here alone working on Mondays. If we're but I had one day off for sure. I had Sundays off. And occasionally we had these Sunday parties and then I'd have no days off. Right. But generally I was working six or seven days a week and I would literally get out of bed, come over to the restaurant and I'd work and, and then I'd, I'd go out for a drink and then go to sleep. But you work in real restaurant hours. I mean, you work in long days, full weeks and you, you get tired. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was all day, every day. And, and I got paid Really, very little back then. I mean, it, you got paid too. I, at the time, I thought I was getting paid pretty well, but the problem was, I didn't. I wasn't able to spend it. So, <laughs> when you work for family, they always convince you that they're paying you well. Yeah, and then uh, I think I got paid that same amount for maybe ten years until I said, "This has got to change." <laughs> 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 it was. It was. You know, when that long? It was probably five or six years before I got a raise. 
And and yeah, I I just didn't have the money for Rechambeau. That you know, I had a car. I was buying a house. I, I got a house. I think it was in October of '97. I I bought my house. So that was where all my money went. Yeah, car yeah. and house. And Chambord was it was a premier restaurant. They were expensive. Yeah, you know, and there weren't as many restaurants around then as there were now, and that was one of the higher end ones. So it took me seven years to renovate my house to where it is now, and it's still no Taj Mahal. But for about seven years, I had a a table saw in my living room, basically. So <laughs> <laughs> so anything. <laughs> so I'd, that was the other thing I'd do at night <laughs> running saws in the living room after work oh boy after you've been drinking probably not uh, the, no, probably not I the smartest thing was, to do I don't know if that oh, okay. I mean maybe there was a beer you know but it wasn't I wasn't on benders um, gotcha. you know running power tools good to know I think after college I started doing front of house work um, I, I managed I waited tables I think I still I think I still was a busboy from time to time. You know, I, I kind of filled in where whatever whatever job was, was short was a job I did, which was great because eventually I became close to expert at every job. Around that time, we had a guy who came in the morning and then we had a, a kitchen manager. And at one point, that whole management dynamic, that whole, as things kind of ebb and flow, we, we lost our, our top kitchen guys. So my job was to go into the kitchen and I stayed there for, for about two years running the kitchen and I did the morning work and the nighttime work. That's when I was there all day long, all night long, every day. Then I slowly, over those two years, I reestablished some management in the kitchen. My next job was, I think I was spent about a year on the bar, which was great because I came, became a pretty good bartender in that year and hired a new bartender once I realized that, you know, I kind of had that down and started managing the front of house again. What was your progression, Alvin? So you went to, to Chambord and you're working in that kitchen as a chef. And then you say you moved over to the bistro. Yeah. So I was working in uh, the, the main restaurant, Le Chambord. And I was, I guess I was a sous chef. There was a chef above me, Alain Jacquemin, who was an excellent Belgian chef who worked at a place called La Villa Lorraine, which is a Michelin star place. So after I worked with him for a few years, then they decided to open up a more casual restaurant that had the rotisserie chickens and, and that kind of stuff. That was called the Bistro. And they asked me to be the head chef there and run that restaurant, which helped them out because, you know, they went through a period of time where it, it wasn't doing very well. And they kind of asked me to go over there and pick up the pieces. So um, it was a, a learning curve for me because I didn't get to start when it was brand new. I got to take it over after some damage had been done. So I kind of had to turn it around. So that was interesting and fun. And it was it was nice for me because it was an open kitchen. And I got to see my customers who were coming in. And you get to know the regulars. And they, you know, you get to know what people like and anticipate their needs. And, and that was pretty cool. I'd never worked in an open kitchen before. So Apparently you liked it because you made Cobalt relatively open. I did. I designed that kitchen somewhat based on the kitchen that I, well, many kitchens that I worked in before, but that was one of the, the pieces of the puzzle was the open kitchen. I like the open kitchen concept because I can, I'm generally in my kitchen cooking. Um, if I'm not on the line sauteing, I'm either in the window making sure that every plate goes out looking perfect and you know has the right amount of sauce, has the right garnish and you know, it looks right. So when I'm up in that window, I can see my customers, whether they're walking in or they're getting ready to leave. Um, so I can say hi, I can say goodbye. I can see 
the general flow of the restaurant. I can see if we're about to get hit and we're about to get in the weeds. Also, you can just see people enjoying themselves and you can, you can actually see the reactions when the plate goes down in front of their faces. And that's one of the reasons why I do this to, to bring pleasure to people, you know, through, through our food and through our craft and through our art. And um, to be able to see that immediately because we have this window in our open kitchen is, is kind of cool. So how did you transition from a chef at the bistro at Rayshan board to owner at Cobalt? You know, it's, one of those things when you, you have a dream and my dream was always to own my own restaurant and I'd worked really hard. Well, you know, we hear that all the time. You know, how many times have you interviewed a cook and you ask him or ask that person what their yeah. goals are and they say, well, I want to own my own restaurant in three years or something like that. They say that and that's great I yeah. mean, it's ambitious, Yeah, and, but it so rarely happens. Yeah. I, I think you just have to um, stay focused and, and, maintain that your dream will come true but you have to take action and make it happen and it's it's very easy to to be in a job and be getting a steady wage and not have to worry whether your paycheck's going to be there to going to taking that leap which is really scary to doing your own place and essentially not getting paid every week and um and having to pay everyone else and make things work so. right how many how many paychecks have you skipped in the past let's just say six months <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's pay has been very spotty during COVID. Um, it was very spotty for me at Cobalt. Um, Isn't it funny? Like we get, we have for the most part, well, for the hundred percent part, or you wouldn't be in business. You got all your vendors get paid. All your employees get paid. Yeah. But the owner of the company that they think, you know, has a nice car and the nice house yeah, and, yeah. And, and is able to, to make all this money you're the one that that holds that holds that bag at the end and and just doesn't you don't get paid it's a very popular misconception that restaurant owners are loaded i mean some i some are i suppose i i, I bet the we, guy we who get them on the i bet the, the guy who's chick-fil-a i bet he's loaded <laughs> i'd like to be him right about mr now. a yeah mr a um but yeah we're the first to take the sacrifice and and quite rightly so you know it's yeah. it's, it's our business and, and we have people that depend on us so we've, we've got to be there for them when we go from an employee to an owner that's that's one of the things it's a calculated risk and it's something that not only can happen it should be expected almost because there's going to be ups and downs and occasionally you find yourself living month to month and right. trying to figure out how am i going to make the mortgage how am i going to make this and then december comes around and you and you have you're turning people away for reservations and you're able to buy christmas gifts and then catch up on your rent so tell me about your shift from being um a person who was working in your family's restaurant to now that person who has to take on all those responsibilities who is an owner of the restaurant how did how did that transition alvin that happened shortly after my uncle died in december in 2005 previous to that it was my mother and my uncle and i running the restaurant but my mother and my uncle were partners and I was an employee and to go back when I decided to go into restaurant management in college, previous to my uncle's death, uh, we had plans of succession, which included me being, um, in control of his ownership of the restaurant. And as many things happen, you know, in a lot of families that became disputed and, you know, after he, after he died and, it worked out that we actually had to purchase his 
interest in the restaurant and real estate uh, from his estate. That created my first challenge, really, as an owner, because all of a sudden I go from being an employee who gets a regular paycheck to that was my first real taste of being an owner when and and it was immediate because I went from being an employee who gets paid a weekly check to an owner who's got a, a huge mortgage of a number that I had never even imagined. And I have to make profits in order to get paid. And that doesn't always happen. And uh, in that time, business was, was pretty good. Thankfully, 2005, 2006, uh, right in that area, it was good, but that made having a business that's even better just made that purchase price larger. So really, if the business was doing poorly then, we would have had to pay quite a bit less to get ownership of his interest. The economy was good then. Real estate prices were up. Business was decent. So I ended up buying everything at a premium. That's That was my transition to in, uh, into ownership. That's a rude awakening. Yeah. Well, you had the same thing in, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, yours was more planned, but you had the same thing. It was. And I, I was... Yeah, I was lucky. Well, I guess we were similar because you had a, a built-in clientele. Mine wasn't built in because I went from one place to another. But fortunately, the people that used to come and see me when I worked at Chambord and the Bistro then transitioned and came over to see me at Cobalt. Well, when we sat down here to start our our, um, our podcast today, you looked at your phone and you said, wow, today is our 20, 20th anniversary at Cobalt. <laughs> yeah. I know. Great fanfare. So yeah, so we opened October 2000. October 12th, 2000, which, and today's October 12th, 2020. So today's our official um, 20th anniversary. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, we had planned to have a big party and invite everyone, you know, old customers, new customers to, you know, at least drop by and say hi and have a drink and have a little fanfare. But um, yeah, you've been talking about that since uh, well, a couple like, of years. Well, yeah, at, at least a year or two we've been you know, talking about it and planning it, but then COVID hit and those plans went out the window. Um, and I and today almost went by without me remembering that it was our anniversary. So thanks for reminding me. And we'll do something at some point, hopefully this year, if not next year. I mean, it's not it's not about doing it on the day, but I think it's about recognizing the achievement. And um, I think it's a, a little achievement, 20 years in the restaurant business. Did you ever think when you opened up Cobalt Grill that 20 years from now you'd be still rolling still doing well you know i never thought that far ahead before so no i mean i would have hoped it but you just never think of that you you when you open a restaurant you're striving to get through the first year and then you strive to get through the first five years and then when you do five years you think okay maybe i'm gonna make it and then you do 10 years and you think okay cool but you know then you get <laughs> hit with you know, major things after that, hurricanes and terrorist attacks and COVID, and you just kind of fighting to stay alive. Here we are, like, like we talk about all the time, in a totally different world for restaurants. What have you learned that's really gotten you through? Here's what I know. I know that we are resilient. I know that we are determined. I know that we, we can pivot and we can adapt. I know that the staff that we have and the staff that have stayed with us are just dynamic and you know we ask a lot of them you know we're changing menus and we're changing you know hours and we're changing styles of service and you know we're changing a lot and they they adapt and they shift and they pivot and they and they're with us and it's it's the most amazing thing to see them them grow and help us out through these these times and they know that 
we don't know what's going to happen, but they're along for the ride with us. And that's, that's amazing. Yeah, I agree with that. It's, it's cool to have that level of loyalty and trust Yeah, where even, even when we don't know what's next, yeah. they're still okay. Yeah. We're, we're going to ride along. But they know that, you know, we're leaders and, and we always have their back and, and we're going to, we're going to get through this together. So I think the trust factor that they have is, is really cool. What is it uh, in your experience in the past that has helped you through our, uh, the current challenges of this year? Was it that independence that you learned as a child that you had to, you had to reach through that mail side and pull the key out and, and then come in and cook food for you and your friends? Or was it having pans thrown at you at, at, in, in London? I mean, really all of that has, has helped because you become a survivor and you know that things are going to change and you don't know which side that, that pan that's being thrown at you is coming from. You don't know if it's coming from the left, you don't know if it's coming from the right, but you know, it's a copper pan and it's hard and it's going to hurt. So you, you learn to, to duck and to dive and to, uh, to get to the next level. And yeah, all those, all those lessons definitely, definitely help. But I've noticed that, you know, all the, all the help that we got from customers and friends and other businesses and it was totally awesome and just life-changing getting all that help when COVID started and we're still getting help from people. But I've started to know, notice that the attitude in some of our customers are starting to shift a little back to where it used to be. And that's a little disconcerting. Their expectations are coming back to um, pre-COVID expectations. What I will say is that, you know, we're still not out of the woods. Restaurants are still down in comparison to, to other businesses. And one of the hardest things for us to do is to maintain those standards that we had pre-COVID as much as we would like to, but it's, it's really hard for us to attain that, that goal because we're doing it with a lot less staff. You know, it's hard for us to get more kitchen staff. It's hard for us to get more floor staff because people are still scared about returning to work and catching the disease. It's very challenging for us to meet the expectations of all our customers, although we are definitely trying our best and, and, and we try to bat a thousand and, and get everything absolutely perfect, but it's just not realistic. And we just really hope that uh, our customers will understand that and still ride along with us through these times that are still challenging. Brady, have you noticed customer expectations? Have they changed uh, recently or are people still have the same attitudes as they're coming in for dining? Well, yeah, everything's changed, Alan, but here's the thing. From, from when this, from the worst of the COVID crisis, really, there's been very little that has changed except for what we're allowed to do, how many people we're allowed to have in our front door. We're walking a really fine line with A, doing enough business that we can stay in business, B, serving as many people as we're capable of and keeping our customers happy and, and being accessible to our guests. What a lot of people don't understand is that the employment market challenges that we've faced over the past six months have been huge. And previous to that, I would say in the past two years, we've had a very difficult market in that that market has been very difficult for us. So Alvin, when you put an ad out, how many how many responses do you get? A lot. We get a lot of response. Um, well, let's just say it's let's just say you get fifty responses. Yeah. How many do you decide to interview? I would say probably 10 out of 50. 10 out of 50. And, and, and that's and then, just because, not because, you know, I'm better than them or anything, but some are, some are forklift workers or... So you interview 10 out of 50. 
Well, no, 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 no. You set up, you schedule, I, you schedule, I schedule interviews, interviews for 10 out of 50. How yeah. many of those people show up for their interviews? So out of the 10, typically two would show up. Out of those two, how many do you feel would be a good hire? Usually one out of the two. And how often does that one guy show up at his first day of employment? About 50% of the time. No, less than 50% of the time. Probably about 35% of the time that one person will show up. Right. And that's it. And that's a, that's very similar to my experience as well. So then they show up and they might work for a day or a week. Yeah. And then they decide that it's not for them. It's for not what, for whatever them. Yeah. it's just too much work or it's just not. Yeah. What, what, for whatever reason. We're, we've been seeing this trend for over two years, I think. Uh, yeah. Since COVID, it's been Magnif- exponentially bad. Magnified, yeah. Alvin, we've both been doing much more to-go food than we've probably we've probably done more in the six month in the past six months than we've done in the past six years for sure i and and i know that from how many to-go boxes we've been ordering and paper supplies yeah what do you think is going to happen with that well i think the trend is definitely leaning towards a lot of people wanting takeout but i i think a lot of people are going to want to come back out and dine with us i really do uh the the current trend at least at my restaurant is that more people want to sit outside so we are currently trying to figure out how to get more space outside. And as we go into the winter months, that's going to be challenging because now we need heaters, but you know, you don't have money to pay for the heaters or for the tents because you don't have enough customers coming in. It's a really bad catch 22 situation, but we'll get through that. But that being said, I think the trend is more outdoor dining and more takeout. And if people do come out in droves after all this is over, I just hope we can handle it because again, we're not up to speed with service staff. Yeah, I think there's a question of momentum. I think that there's momentum with the with the to go food and people get in habits of getting to go food. It kind of felt like like there was a rubber band that was stretched and it was stretched and it was stretched and it was stretched and then finally it broke and it you know popped and mm-hmm. it snapped on your finger kind of thing. Like it, it's like people were stretched so long not being able to go out that when they finally did, they came out and they were extremely happy to be out. And they, they kind of came out and mass. I, I know that mother's day was one day that we just got completely bulldozed overrun. and um, overrun. Right. I'm wondering how much of that we're going to see when they finally have a vaccine, when people start to feel safe to go out again. Well, what's going to happen is when that happens and I'm sure it will, there's going to be a lot less restaurants around. I mean, restaurants are, are disappearing in their hundreds and thousands day by day. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a survival of the fittest. It's, it's either who has deep pockets and can wait it out. It's either who's pivoting and, and learning to deal with, you know, the situation day by day and staying alive that way. Those of us, hopefully, you know, we'll both be in the game. We're going to have to figure out how to deal with, with that demand when it comes. Right. Cause the last thing we want to do is annoy or irritate the customers that are coming by giving them bad service or bad food or a bad experience. That's the last thing we want. I think that in some aspect, I think to go food is here to stay. And another aspect, I think that the restaurants are here to stay. People are going to always want to go out and they're always going to want to be part of the energy and the um, activity of a restaurant. I'm sure people are looking forward to your band nights and people are looking forward to your wine dinners and all the, the kind of more social things that happen in restaurants and just, just being able to go out on a date and and just be part of something is almost a human need, I think. Yes, absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. So let me ask you a question. So who do you 
look to for guidance and inspiration because you're you know you're a restaurant guy and a, and a hotel manager guy and you know i've had uh certain chefs that i look to and I, who i think are heroes and who i look to for inspiration and, and to see what they're doing um you be more front of the house who do you look to for inspiration and guidance is it like a you know a danny meyer or yeah danny meyer is definitely a bit of an idol i've read his books um multiple times and there's nobody that i talk to on a regular basis except for people here on, on my staff like tom v for example we talk service all the time kelly the manager we talk service all the time tom Lynn and i talk service all the time and i talk with you about it i talk with my mother i talk with my brother i talk with um my father i talk talk to my guests and to get their perception of certain things and my regular guests. And if I have some question about something that I just can't get an answer to, I, I find it online somehow. Yeah. But as far as service goes, I was probably about 27, 28. And in my head, like a, I felt it like a gear dropping into, into place when I finally understood. And it was more than understanding than like somebody telling me, it was just uh, the light bulb turned on when I first actually realized that service was completely about the guest. And I know that sounds cliche and ultimately simple, but when you remove yourself as much as possible from the service experience that the guest is having, that's when the magic happens. And I think that that was around the time that I read Setting the Table mm-hmm. by Danny Meyer. And I think that that was probably in there somehow because that, that was you mentioned it first and i think that it had something to do with that but i think it was described in some way in there about that magical silent service that just happens that thing that i always talk about when you get to the you're on your way out of the restaurant and and it's almost like a dream you don't really remember the server being there you just remember things happening in a perfect in a perfect manner remember being fully informed about any question you had or anything with the menu You, you remember things arriving at the table uh, unobtrusively, uh, people, it, no elbows in your face, no, no people reaching across or even speaking. Pardon this, pardon that. Here's this, here's that. Just magic. To do that, you have to become transparent. And if you're focused on yourself and not focused on the guest, and it sounds so simple, but it's not. And you know, when you start to focus on the guest and just try to be transparent, as transparent as you can. That's when it happens. You know, I think I got that from my Uncle Steve, my mother, from Danny Meyer's book, and all the people here. You know, those those early waiters that were here, those those guys from from when I was a kid, Mr. Gary and JJ Trotman and Ike Newsom and Philip Jones, they're all gone now. They're, they've passed away. That old style service that is so so hard to find these days. Professional lifelong service. Right. That was their profession. Just like Right. You're a car mechanic or you're a you know a bus driver. Your profession was to be a waiter. It wasn't a fill-in job or something. But it was more than that. It yeah. was it's I mean there's there's professional mechanics that, that don't do a good job fixing cars. Yeah. There's that these guys were pros. I mean pros in a way that I mean they were they were the yardstick. I mean they they were amazing. So who do I go to? I go to you, I go to my mom, yeah, I go to my family. Um, it, it's funny when you say you go to meet, like I had a, an issue 
the other day. And, and sometimes these things keep me up at night and sometimes they don't, but this particular one did. And my wife's like, what is wrong with you? Cause I, I get up and I start writing in the middle of the night. I have a, I, on the bedside, I have the monitor so I can watch the baby and I have a, a, a pen and a paper and I start writing stuff down. And she's like, you know, the lights on, I can't sleep, take it somewhere else. So I write this down and it, and it, and I was going to put it on Facebook, you know, or Instagram, what my thoughts were. And then in the morning, you know, she said, before you do that, why don't you, you know, talk to Brady or talk to Robert and see what they think first. So I did. So I, I wrote my thoughts down. And then I sent them to you and you both were like, no, <laughs> don't put that on social media. Well, I'm like, why not? It's my thoughts. What is wrong with my thoughts? And um, it, you're right. It was the best thing uh, to do was not to post it. We all have these moments that are frustrating and, and I'm sure in any business, People have have frustrating moments, and they're angry at about uh, they're angry with a manager, or they're ang- angry with a an employee, a coworker. Maybe they're angry with a family member, or or you know they they just feel wronged. And I think that you felt you were offended, and you're you felt wronged and disrespected. I'm not sure that your emotions were unfounded, but we work in a business that we have to keep our emotions in check, and those types of emotions we we have to. It's it's backstage and and on stage, yeah. and we can't and, make it about ourselves, and we can't take it personal. It's not about you, yeah, it's and not. it's and it's it is about the guest. And if there's something going on that you don't like, it needs to remain behind the curtain. It yeah. can't we we can't show the the inner workings of the of our minds that like that. I mean, we, you know, in this forum, I think we can talk about it, we can talk through it, but but uh, you know, to to so while you while you're saying that, what do you, what do you think is the importance of our podcast or is there any importance why did we start doing this why do we continue to do this i would like somebody to do it for me i would like to listen to a pod i've been listening to them um i enjoy listening to them and and i think for for our guests and for our employees and maybe it's not ours maybe it's it's you know employees in another restaurant yeah but i feel like the most that, that we can do for our industry and the more information that we can get out there, and, and, and there's some entertainment as well, uh, I think that we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to our industry to be a voice and to talk about these things, to talk about what we're going through, yeah. to, and, and to get, I know that we've gotten ideas from, our, from each other and from other guests that we've had on how to handle certain things. To do, it, to do that in a public forum and be able to share it with listeners, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's important, and I think it does a service. I think it's great. I, and it's I, I enjoyable. Really it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. And to get opinions and, and different views and different ideas from, from other people in the restaurant industry, that's that's paramount and it's cool. And I think that when people listen to us and they hear our stories, they have similar stories. And, you know, they'll write us little notes and tell us things and, and say thanks and keep on doing it. And, and that keeps us motivated to do it. So I, I think it's cool. I think that the first the first thought about it was that I just really wanted to talk about things. To, to keep calling you on the phone and belly aching. <laughs> uh, you know, there's so only so much of that we can do to each other. And then oh, let's, let's put our thoughts together and talk to more people about it. Well, also people who come to our restaurants, I guess they get to find out a little bit more about us personally, because there's only so much time you can spend at a table because people generally go out to eat with themselves, with their wives or their husbands or their family. They don't want us sitting down and hanging out for two hours. And we're at work. And where it works. So we have things to do. So as much as some people, would, oh, come on, sit down, Alvin, let's talk, let's catch up. You know, I, I would love to do that. 
but I, I literally don't have the time because especially now, you know, I've, I'm on the line. I got to go back there and cook. Alvin, we've taken this trip down memory lane where it goes back to you pulling your, your key out of your mail slot and me <laughs> riding around on my grandfather's lap on the tractor. It's been it's been fun. It's been a fun but a long journey. That's right. Well, we want to thank our listeners for listening. And uh, if they want to see or hear any more information, they can visit thecheckpodcast.com. And where they'll find transcripts, photos, other episodes. And links to other people's restaurants and what they're doing and uh, prior guests. Well, it was uh, great having you with us. So I'm Alvin. I'm Brady. And this is The, the Check. Check.